Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Reed Williams, the co-founder and CTO at Travel Bank, and we discuss the benefits of becoming a great communicator, leadership lessons from the time he spent in the Marines, and insights into the process of raising venture capital. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hey, how's it going? Hey, buddy. How you doing, man? Doing well. Nice to meet you. I'm Reed. I am Joel. <laughs> yeah. Robot Joel today. Robot Joel. Robot Joel. Sometimes I feel like a robot version of myself. Do you ever? Uh, I can't say that I do. Maybe if I'm sick, I might, you know, just be going through the motions. Yeah. You have a little kids, you get sick a lot? I actually have three kids. Mm. Um, but don't get sick too often. Are they in the daycare? Uh, no, my kids are a little bit older. So I, my oh. oldest daughter is, uh, she is 22. Um, she's actually, we adopted her. She's my niece. Then I have a 13 and a 10 year old. So they're at the stage where, you know, it's like at the daycare stage, it's just like a, that's where it all happens. All the sickness goes around. But. Yeah. I've got the kids in daycare and like, I try to avoid them like the plague. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Joel, do you mostly work from home or? No, this is our office. It just oh, looks, okay. it's very home, homey looking. But yeah. uh, Jake and Chloe and everybody are outside that one. This actually, we rented it. It used to be um, a therapist office, right? Oh, okay. So it's very calm, neutral colors. Where are you guys located? So we're in like right outside of Tampa, Florida. Okay. I'm in San Francisco, but I'm originally from North Carolina, so. Oh, East cool. Coaster also. Yeah. Uh, what part? Uh, it's um, in the mountains near Asheville. Do you know where that is? Yeah, my sister used to live in Asheville. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a small world. So I say Asheville, but we're an east, an hour east of Asheville because nobody knows where I'm from. Like Cary? It's so small and dinky. What is it? It's called, Mor it's called Morganton. Morganton. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, see? <laughs> so <laughs> my theory is proved. But um. Uh, so I uh, have known about you for a while, actually, Joe. I mentioned to you when I messaged you on LinkedIn that I saw some of your Facebook posts probably several years ago and ended up liking your page and just always enjoyed your content. So, you know, wanted to say appreciate that at least. What, dude, thank you so much. Yeah, when I got your yeah. Facebook message, I took a screenshot of it and I was like, I sent it to Chloe, our PR person, because I said, this is like the perfect example of how to introduce yourself me because I get people across the board and some are just like hey let me come on your show and I'm like that's a weird yeah. thing like who are you <laughs> like what do you want to talk right. about do you have a relevant like like are we gonna what are we gonna do but you had such like a, a professional introduction I actually put on my notes to, as one of the things I wanted to talk with you about because it was it was really good oh thank you yeah and actually um, I didn't know that Brandy and team were already talking to you guys either so because I think you had you had followed me and I saw that you followed or you had um, connected to me on LinkedIn and I didn't realize that there was this conversation going on behind the scenes at the same time. Um, so that's when I reached out. Yeah. It's this perfect kind of timing. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you're in the travel industry. Is coronavirus popular right now in the travel industry? I don't know if I would say it is popular. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it is, it is definitely something that I think we, you know, are learning a lot from. Um, and I was going to give a shout out to our, our uh, marketing and PR teams. They actually have put together a couple of uh, blog posts that we are keeping up to date as things evolve uh, in regards to how it's affecting the travel industry. So like, for example, you may or may not know, but United actually, uh, they are waiving all change fees for the next like 30 to 60 days or something like that. And so it's happening with a lot of vendors. And so obviously a lot of our clients are affected because we manage their travel. And so we want to make sure and try to stay on top of it for, for all of them. So what is it like, how do you manage their travel? Is it like an interface where people book travel? Yeah. So basically travel bank started, uh, you know, Duke, my co-founder and I, we started this business about four, four and a half years ago. Um, and it actually started through, um, concur, believe it or not. So when we worked together at this company called Parature, ended up selling to Microsoft. And so 
Duke as the CEO at the time went over there and um, he was forced to start using Concur. And very shortly after that, what happened was um, Concur got acquired. And so I think for us, it was a signal that, hey, there's this opportunity in the market where we see this platform and we think that there's going to be room for other people to come in and start creating some disruption. And so that was kind of the nexus for the idea and it's evolved since then. Um, it actually started with this idea that we could change the way that people think about making purchasing decisions. Um, and so the, the very, very first thing that we built was this budgeting tool. And so you would put in like, I'm going from New York to San Francisco and here are my dates. And we would look at live pricing and determine an algorithm for how much that trip should cost. And the idea was that once you had that budget, um, you would use that to make purchasing decisions. And if you beat your budget, you would get half of that back as a reward. So if you think about the way that you change, the way that you make purchasing decisions when you're on a business trip, it's completely different than when you're doing it for a personal trip. And so instead of staying at like a three-star hotel, maybe you'll stay at a lower class hotel or maybe you'll stay farther out so you can save rewards. Or ultimately, maybe you even stay at a friend's house who's in New York, right? Um, and by beating that budget and by giving them that incentive, it changes the way that people can approach their everyday decision-making while on that trip. So it saves the company money and the, and the employees are also happier because um, they're able to get some personal benefit from it. So that was the that was the idea, the budgeting tool. And then from there, we knew that you had to um, track your expenses against that budget. So we went into expenses from there. And then ultimately where we ended up today is with travel also. So what we have today is a fully uh, managed travel and expense program um, that helps companies save money on their business travel while keeping track of where their employees are and what they're doing. And and you know, just helping them wrangle all the costs that are associated with that. Um, and that's kind of the value that we drive on today. Yeah, and I like the evolution of the product. And it, if I'm if I'm correct, you had a consultancy, like so you built product for quite a while before before you got into this. Yeah, so <clears throat> my personal path has been very untraditional, I, I would say. So I don't know how far back I should go or let's go back uh, to the Marines. Sure. I want to know about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's funny. When I got out of high school, I went to college for a few years. And ironically, I, I ended up failing out of two schools, two years in a row, academically suspended, right? And so, and so then I ended up, uh, I was waiting tables and I got recruited into the Marine Corps. And so once I joined, I did systems and network administration um, for about three years. And then for another three years, I did uh, development for them. So I was building software for the base Quantico. Um, and while I was in, I ended up getting a bachelor's degree. Uh, when I got out uh, of the Marine Corps, I ended up uh, doing some consulting on my own. I had my own business and I ended up getting my master's degree at that time. Um, and then ended up joining Paratrooper for maybe a year, which is the last company that Duke and I worked at. And then from there went to, uh, when Microsoft made the acquisition, I left Maybe about a year later, Duke called me up with this new idea to start this new company. So really, I don't have any sort of traditional big company experience at all. I mean, I wouldn't consider the Marine Corps in that bucket. Um, so I have a really interesting and, and diverse way of thinking about things that I think maybe aren't something that you usually see. Um, you know, so um, it's it's been it's been an interesting ride for sure. Yeah, I. I have never worked at like a large company either. And when we started to expand and grow our software to enterprises and started getting the security questionnaires and they were saying things like making sure that the same developer who has access to production doesn't have access, like the same person that has staging can't touch production data and all this stuff. I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, there's a team yeah. of like two people and we build stuff. Like, what do you mean that person? And And that's when I started to understand and I was having conversations with different CTOs and like you, like if you wanted a, a, a machine provisioned, you would have to go like submit a form. I'm like, well, you just spin it up an instance. What are you talking about? And uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of red tape in those bigger organizations, which is why I love the smaller ones when they innovate so quickly. Yeah, that was, um, I went from like the one extreme of that, which is in the Marine Corps, obviously everything is very much, it's very, systematic and bureaucratic right um and actually what happened was that left a very 
bad taste in my mouth. I think I was looking to do the complete opposite of that. And so that's what I did. And I bring a lot of that with me into my experiences today, but it's really funny because yeah, I kind of, I kind of ran away from that. And that was part of my decision not to go to Microsoft when that happened um, because of those reasons. Exactly. And I get it though. Right. Because when you get the organization that big, like those controls need to be in place because you don't know everybody, not everybody's in the same room together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it totally makes sense. And, and so we're growing into some of that now. I've, have lost track of the number of security audits and reviews I've done in the last in the last 24 months. So so you learn those skills as you get a little bigger also. Yeah, I saw software started to pop up for them too, like to manage your compliance and security. They started to get pretty popular. Yeah, we we use some today. Um by the way, your business, are you talking about leader bits or something else? Leader bits, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So you're doing you having to go through any some like security compliance for that or yeah, yeah, we got customers that are like in the banking industry, and um, yeah, so we, you know, we have the leadership platform, and we connect um, their company, and then their people are on it, and we, you know, we send them emails, and they have like the Slack magic links, and then because we're sending them emails, and their people are in our systems, they're having us comply with their vendor requirements. Yeah, I was uh, looking into it a little bit. I I like a, what a lot of what you're doing there. I think the development piece is interesting. I think that. I've been fortunate because I've been leading people since I was like 21, 22. And then they teach you that through like the military, the it's like leaders are made, not born. And through those experiences, like I have realized leadership itself is such an abstract concept, right? It's not like you can point to one thing and say, this is what makes this person a good leader. It's, it's like a combination of many, many different things. I mean, it's something I'm personally passionate about. And then you know, obviously it sounds like you are as well, since you build a whole business around it. <laughs> Um, at least for the leadership development piece. Yeah. And it kind of, it happened backwards too. Cause like it happened because of the podcast and it was less about me teaching leadership. And actually I, I teach nothing in the, in the content we take like insight from, from leaders that come on and share their advice. And we figure out, you know, I was before, before we founded the company, I was driving to the office to record a podcast and I was listening to an audible book and I was like, Whoa, on that 20 minute drive, I heard like 15 good things, but there was, there were just good things to hear. There was like no way to actionably implement them. And I was like, we need to just break. Like, I don't, we don't even need 20 minutes of listening to something. You only need like two or three minutes of an idea or a concept and then figure out how to put it into action. And then if you just do that, you make way more progress. So because you can't point, like you said, to like one specific thing, figured, why don't we just take a stream of like the best ideas and then figure out a way to put them into action. And then we just, at least it's better, better than the current system, right? Cause there's like nothing perfect, but it's better than the go to a workshop and sit there for four hours and then just go back to work. It's better than that. Yeah. It's an interesting way to think about it. I kind of think I, I draw this parallel sometimes that leadership is like, you know, if you're into like martial arts and that kind of thing, a martial art is something that you study for your entire lifetime. And so I feel like leadership has some characteristics of that, because if you feel like you are the best leader at any given point, like you, you, you should have, I think that's the wrong mindset. Like you always have to be learning. You always have to be improving. And I think you, and I think it's something that you can't ever fully master. You just, you know, over time, um, continue to improve at it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe it's kind of like music. Like, you don't win like there's no destination right there's like you just yeah. continuously improve and grow at it i definitely can see that yeah it's it's very similar so you guys raised some capital along the way right as you yeah. guys have grown we get a lot of we're actually in the middle of raising capital what what sort of insights or thoughts do you have for me going through this process well uh let me think about the right way to talk ones about. that you can share publicly <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i think that you have to know what you're getting into i think venture capitalists um you know they really are looking to understand the value that you're going to drive to your customers you know is the market big enough i think that's a huge one right um if the market's not big enough you might have trouble attracting capital because you can't grow within that market um, so those are a couple of key elements in terms of how you're thinking about it. Um, and ultimately just like any form of communication, when you're going in for the pitch, 
you got to understand who your audience is and what they're looking to hear from you. And you got to tailor your, your approach against that. And that's, you know, that's not just for a venture capital pitch. That's for any conversation that you have, whether you're like trying to get somebody to do something or, or you're trying to affect a change through your communication. Um, but it's very important to understand what is driving the, in this case, the venture capitalists in, in that conversation. So you can tailor your conversation towards them. And that's a completely different set of skills than, than, than I think um, when you're communicating in other situations. So it's pretty important. And then I think resiliency is important because you know you you may get a lot of no's before you get some yeses. Um, but those are each each time you do that, you're improving your approach to it. Yeah, like refine. I, I like how you mentioned finding out what drives them. That's one of the things I do when interviewing people like for for job positions i'm always trying to figure out yeah. like what is the driving force in this individual's life and then does that align with the work that needs to be done here yeah that's a great example sales is another one right um sales recruiting and pitching basically which are kind of all boiled down to the same thing i, I work with a lot of the um you know we we grow we have grown a lot of people in-house through this journey i think we have a statistic that 30 percent of our people have been promoted internally and the thing that you, especially for the engineers who are growing, I think it's really interesting because sometimes that communication and thinking in that way doesn't come naturally to an engineer. It's kind of like, well, I know this thing will do this because that's how it's made, right? It's like very logical, but communication is not like that. And so I work a lot with my engineering leaders to understand, like, how do you take what you know about your craft and turn it into something that... Um, that somebody else can understand and get. Um, and that's, that's a very uh, interesting skill that I think that um, as you grow and as you wanna have wider influence, you definitely need to, to work on that. Um, and that applies, I think, to pitching too. No, you, you bring up a good point because like it's counterintuitive. So, you know, being in, as engineers, we're like, let's move the ball forward and let's, let's write this code or complete this ticket or do something to move us forward. So we're farther on this journey and anything deviating from that's a distraction and useless, right? To the point where me communicating my progress to an overall objective becomes something that I'm like against. Right. And yeah. so it's counterintuitive to think if I take time away from completing objectives to then summarize in some verbal way to these other individuals who aren't doing the work, uh, or, you know, who won't, that that's a waste of time and it's just, it's difficult and it happens all the time. You can take it from there as an engineer. You could take it as a, as a founder having to communicate back to the VCs, right? Like I always find it pretty frustrating when I have to do my quarterly or monthly updates. Cause I'm like, ah, oh, we just need to focus on the metrics and like do more things with the team to get the metrics done. But you know, you just have to develop systems and processes around that because it has to be done. Yeah, I call it kind of, um, you know, I think I think what happens with engineers is they have a very direct way of thinking about things, as you say. So what I call it is like kind of rounding out your communication style and understanding, you know, like how that's going to affect the other person and and really like what is the other person going to get out of this out of this interaction? Like the like communication as a skill is 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 something that's very interesting um, that I think about a lot. At least I don't know if it's evident or not, but um, that's kind of uh, how I try to mentor internally also uh, with the people here. So dive deeper into that. So like, let's say you're talking with an engineer, excellent engineer, they're growing in their career and they're having to learn this communication. Like how, how do you approach that? So I advocate for professional development through reading and study. Um, that's a, that's a big one for me. Uh, there's a couple of, of uh, really great books that I like. Um, there's one actually called, the power of communication. Um, that one I, I stole from the Marine Corps actually. Um, it's on the Commandant's uh, uh, reading list. So he has, a, he has a list of books around leadership and things that he publishes. And so that one was on that list. And that one's pretty amazing because it helps you think about um, how you tailor your conversations. Um, and it's more specifically actually, believe it or not, geared to like PR um, and PR specifically in crisis. Um, and so it's a really good read. So professional development is one. 
Also, I think knowing about different uh, techniques is fairly important. So for example, I'm a big proponent of active listening, um, which is uh, basically a way to improve your own communication by helping others feel that you know, you're actively engaged in the conversation with them. Um, and then it helps you have a little bit of empathy towards what they're trying to say so that you can then be a more effective communicator. So when, when you're in the Marines, they, um, you mentioned that, you know, they're not, leaders aren't born, they're made, and that you learned a lot of, of leadership traits there. But th- how did they teach you that? Or what were some of your takeaways from there? So there's a lot of things that they do. Um, so there's like, I think, 14 leadership characteristics that they teach you. Um, I don't know them all offhand, but it's things like judgment, dependability. Um, I've actually been writing some LinkedIn posts on it as well. But um, so they have a lot of things like that that help you think about the knowledge. But honestly, a lot of it comes from the experience. So I'll, I'll, I was thinking about the story. I thought I'd tell this because it's a really interesting story, but um, it, it maybe speaks to how to think about leadership a little bit. But I remember I had just joined my unit and I was maybe 20, 21 years old. And I had this leader um, and he, there was this experience that happened. And so I'm going to, I'm going to maybe tell him myself a little bit, cause it's kind of a funny story, but um, in the barracks where you stay, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a dorm room, right? And everybody stays in the barracks and you get inspections from time to time. And sometimes there's surprise inspections and, and there's sometimes contraband that you're not supposed to have in there. And I had some, I think hard liquor in my barracks room. Right. And so, we had the surprise inspection and all of a sudden everybody's out there standing in line and, and it wasn't my boss that did the inspection. It was like two layers above him. So this is like a big deal and, and like you can get in some real trouble and you know, I'm a young kid. I don't know anything. I'm just, just now joining in and I'm kind of like, I'm starting to freak out a little bit. Right. And so I'll never forget it because they found the liquor um, and they, I think were asking like, whose is this? Right. And I didn't say anything at the time, um, but I waited until later. And later on, when I went to my boss at the time and I told him, I said, hey, look, like, I just want to tell you, like, this was mine. You know, I went to the store and got it. And, and so, you know, I'm just trying to take responsibility for it. And he told me, he said, you know, thanks for coming to me and telling me. He said, you know, um, I'm going to talk to you know, whoever I need to talk to, he said, don't worry about it. We'll take care of you. And so, you know, what was interesting about that is after that, I would have done anything for that guy. Like it's just this one action where he took care of me. And by doing that, it made me sort of, it just created in a sense, some loyalty behind it. And so, you know, after that, like I said, I would have followed him anywhere. So it's just really interesting because I think if you take care of your people, ultimately they're going to take care of you too. And like, that's an example. And it's just kind of a, you know, just a story or something that I could share where you learn about leadership through your experiences. And it's really like a, it was a six year long, like sequence of events like that, that showed me or sort of taught me in a lot of ways, you know, I didn't even realize at the time when I was learning, but now that I have progressed and now I'm in this role, I realized how valuable that those things were for me to get to where I am today. So what type of company do you have today? Is it, is it like all in person local or are you guys remote? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, so we have 70 people from all around the world, actually. Um, you know, uh, we have like a lot of our marketing and PR on the East Coast. We have PR on the West Coast. Um, we have um, a lot of our engineering is spread out also, so we're distributed. Um, our core, our core base is in San Francisco. Um, but yeah, we have people who are helping us from all over the world. Nice. So yeah, actually you guys like, and we'll talk about it like after the podcast, but you, we, we just did this exercise at the beginning of the year where, you know, in your first two years, you, you take a lot of different customers as a startup, you try different value props and marketing messages. And we said, Oh, you know, where are we? after two years, like who are our best customers? You know, who do we want 10 times more of and developed like a ideal customer profile. And because you guys are you spread out the way you are and the size you are, you're actually like our exact fit of companies that 
do really well with with leader bits so we took like all of them we looked at the customers that do the best and then we figured out how to develop a profile to just find those types of people um and we actually did that like probably like three weeks ago what's funny is um we also did the exercise i mean i think we probably refined ours maybe a year and a half ago it's it's necessary right because you got to know where your product fits in and 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 how it delivers value to that customer and as a smaller company if you haven't defined that really clearly you could end up um i think being a little bit um less focused on what you're doing because different size customers are going to need different types of features um and so it's it's an important exercise for a startup too so what did you guys learn where is your sweet spot in the market so I would say, so we, we base our customer size off of travel spend. And so where we can give the most value is uh, probably at 10 million of spend and below is what I would say roughly, you know, business travel, when we talk about, you know, we talked about earlier about making sure that the market is big enough uh, to support your venture capital uh, injection and expected growth after that. Business travel globally is like $1.7 trillion. Uh, in the U.S. is 300 billion. Um, probably the top, you know, 150 companies represents maybe a third of that. So we estimate that the SMB segment is probably between 150 to 200 billion dollars. So, so for us, our target is kind of the SMB, um, and that's where our focus has been and where we've seen the most success. Um, so that 100, 150 to 200 billion, that's how much these companies are collectively spending on travel as a whole? That's correct, yeah. Nice, Lot, lots of movement. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting because what's happened in the last, you know, we're, we're very fortunate. I think we had, we got a little bit lucky in our timing. Um, we're seeing a lot of things shift in the business travel industry. But in the past, like the way that it worked with like Concur traditionally, is that um, you know they would sell through travel agencies and travel agencies are service-based companies and so they're basically leasing the software and bringing it in and saying hey we can help you manage your travel here's the software that we recommend that we work with today and that that's a lot of their distribution model right um, and but when you do it that way you have to do it through a sales motion and you have to have a top-down sales motion meaning like you know you're looking for the bigger companies with the bigger spend so that you can I'm going and, and it makes it worth your while. So what, what happened then is that this never really was tailored for the SMB because it's too expensive to capture that segment of the market with a top-down sales motion and a heavy sales team. So you, you have to have product to distribute to that segment of the market and it has to be, and it has to be product led, right? That growth. And so that's kind of been a key component of how we thought about going after that segment of the market and, and, and having a, a great product first and then, pulling in a great service behind it because today we are a fully, you know, licensed travel uh, management company, but we started with the product and technology background. And what's, how many customers do you have on your platform? Yeah. So because we're, uh, you know, product led, we have about uh, 2,300 orgs on our platform and 130,000 users uh, today. Nice. Scaling up those instances on Heroku. <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, we grew we grew out of Heroku. Oh yeah. So t I want to actually yeah. narrow in on that. Like, how do you, how did you grow out of Heroku? So it's actually a very technical, a technically specific thing that happened for us. But um, what happened was when when so we built this feature called NGS, which is, stands for Next Generation Storefront. Which, if you look at a traditional travel search. What you're doing is you're selecting your from and to, so SFO to NYC, you're selecting your dates, August 1st to August 15th, and then you're selecting your economy, your class of service, so economy business first. And so that's the traditional search. And so you only see the one, you only see the one um, listing of results for that search class. But this idea behind NGS is that you do everything, select all the same things except the class of service. And when you do a search, you're showing all the results from all classes of service. And so that way you can compare and see how much, you know, an economy class uh, flight on this airline versus a, versus a business class flight on that airline and et cetera. But the, when we had to do that, um, we actually had to, on the back end, do all of the same searches because the technology that supports that doesn't support 
multi, uh, uh, multi-class searches. So all of a sudden, now every search request that we're getting in, we're actually doing four or five searches behind the scenes. And so Heroku for us at that time, when you put it at scale, what happens is there's some, I think, internal mechanics behind Heroku's routing where our requests are sitting in a queue and not actually getting sent at the same time. And so it was extending our search times. And so for us, we moved, we did an entire complete infrastructure overhaul. We moved the Kubernetes on AWS um, and it, it reduced our search times like, like dramatically. Um, and so, you know, before then Heroku was working fine. You know, it was, it was great. Um, and then we just hit this point where the level of scale that we needed, we needed more functionality and, and really uh, more, or I would say less limitation to the platform. Uh, and in addition, not to mention it saved us some money on the, on the um, hosting costs. Yeah, and I think that's really where their sweet spot is in the market is helping those companies like get started. You can get up and running so fast. Yeah. Yeah. By by the time you have like an at scale need, you have, you know, engineering resources to to do something like make a move. Yeah. I mean, we ran on it for two and a half years or something like that. So it it definitely works. Um, And we actually did evaluate Heroku Enterprise for to get some of the other types of support. And we ended up just deciding to roll our own. We, you know, when you talk about security and compliance, um, there are, are some things that when you run an AWS that gives you better control of. Um, so for example, um, we host our databases through a third party. And so with Heroku, you can't actually lock down what's connecting to your database because Heroku has these um, sort of transient or IP addresses for the outgoing requests. So I can't really whitelist and say only Heroku connect to my database. Um, and that's a security risk. So we had to move. Another reason that we moved to AWS is because of the, um, the, the networking capabilities. So for example, we set up a VPC. All of our database instances now actually spin up inside of that VPC alongside of our, um, alongside of our Kubernetes infrastructure. And the communication is locked down to within that, to within that VPC and nothing else can connect in. So it gave us also greater control. So, you know, I love when I get to talk with, with people who are, you know, founders, uh, because there's always those difficult moments, you know, when things aren't going right uh, and you get discouraged. And I'm always curious about, you know, how, how you handle those moments. Yeah, well, that's an easy one for me, Joel. Um, I've been in some stressful situations, <laughs> you know, through my, through my life experience. Right. Um, I, I, you know, so to say like the, all of the Marine Corps, <laughs> um, I, I actually deployed a couple of times. Uh, and so those gave me a lot of tools to understand like how I should process the stress that we deal with from day to day and how I can, do that in a positive manner for my team so that I'm not sitting here with my hair on fire, like, like letting it out on the team. I process it and I use the tools from my experience to do so. And then, and then I make sure that I'm setting a great example for the team behind me so that they uh, feel comfortable following me wherever we're going next. Um, and so, and so I think that like, you know, that's a very easy one for me. And that's also something I talk about internally, even, with my other senior team members, I'll tell them, you know, like you have to understand that as a leader, people are looking to you to understand how their behavior should be modeled. And so dealing with those ups and downs is a large part of it, right? Um, uh, you know, you know, like when we're having a good day, it's going to be good for me. It's going to be great. I'll be excited. If I'm having a bad day, I'm also going to normalize that too. And so it's understanding how not to let the extreme ups and the downs affect you like this, but maybe um, keep maybe how to keep it level throughout all of that, where you're still, you still want to keep it level and positive and then just be forward looking and confident in yourself and your team and your business. Preach. Yes. Yeah. This, this is a, like a, a hard learned lesson for me because I tend to be like a pretty excited person. And it's interesting because um, it's an, it's an abnormal, you have to develop an abnormal response. Like, so your normal response to stress is to 
de-stressed, right? Like, oh man, this is like not going well or, or your excitement is to respond with excitement. And you, I think you said it perfectly is you, you have to normalize it because the team will respond to the leader's mood, whether it's that mood is justified or not. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I say like, I've told some people who I know have served and, and the way that I kind of talk about it, at least for my own experiences, like the Marine Corps puts you in, in very, very stressful situations, but they do it on purpose because it's, it's almost like, in a way, they they break that reaction in you and reform it in a way that's going to be better for the situations that you may find yourself in. So like, you know, I'm 18, 19 years old, and all of a sudden, I'm dealing with these crazy levels of stress, like they're putting so much pressure on you. And that changes something, I think, fundamentally in you. And the reason they do that is because you may be going into some really life or death situations, right? And so they kind of have to condition you for that in a way. Um, and so that's like definitely something I bring with me every day into the, into the office and into this environment is that like, I know how now because of that to, to kind of process that. And I, and I kind of think about it, like I want to be that rock in the river where whatever's happening is flowing around you and it, it affects you, but you are still solid and you're still a foundation that others can come behind and look to you and say, Hey, like, okay, we're going to be all right. You know, this is going to be cool. We just going to keep carrying on and doing what we do. And, and, and again, I, I say the confidence is important because you have to believe that you have the right team behind you to uh, go and, and do something awesome. No, I like, I like that, that we're talking about this and going deep into it because I, I, and tell me, tell me what you think if this was true for you, but I initially had resistance to the normalization because I was like, I like the hot, I like the, the experience of, of, you know, going up and going down and like, I like feeling this way and I don't want to like shut it off in like a mental deconstruction way or a way like where I'm detaching from it. And then I figured out how to, um, I guess like put, like put it in my stomach almost like so i can be very excited and it's like in me but like i'm not too overly like animated or excited um and and uh, i guess i i just i i learned that there's more value in uh normalizing it and being that stable thing uh because that's what will get me what i want long term yeah i kind of i i think it's funny because a lot of times like I think that's why it's also important to have a diverse team because I know there are others on my team that will also, I always say like, I'm the ice and they're the fire, right? You need, you need both of those things. Right. Um, because I think there's a healthy amount of some of that, that you can bring to the table, but that's a slippery slope too, because it's also, there's also a very unhealthy amount of that that you can bring to the table. Um, so stress is good pressure is good but like if you're as a leader like folding to that then then i think it can very easily become not good and i guess that's just where like experience comes in that's why like experienced leaders that are going through these things learning these skills are why they make more money <laughs> <laughs> i don't know yeah um can't comment on that uh you know but um one thing I'll say is I've been very fortunate to have some really great examples of leadership when I think through the history of what I've seen and dealing with stress is one aspect of leadership. I think, I think there's a lot of other things like how you carry yourself day to day, you know, how, how, how do your people see you? You know, that's really important, right? Because how people see you affects how you can influence them, you know? So you promote leadership, throughout your organization you said you do a lot of the reading you suggested some books what do you what do you do for fun like how do you unwind with your team there's a couple things that come to mind for me i think the biggest one is like when i think about people who join in a startup like usually the day-to-day -day of it can go by really really fast and so i think it's important every once in a while to kind of step back and 
and look at what you're doing and kind of measure progress and see like where you're at. And so what we've done actually, and we just did this last week and this is why this comes to mind for me. So we have a yearly offsite in, in, in February. And that is, we brought everyone in from all over the world and we went in and, and we talk about our goals for 2020. But, you know, regardless of that part of that experience, something I think that's really important is taking some time to like really realize what you're doing and, and celebrating that with the people who you're doing it with. Um, because, you know, I think when you're at a much larger company, right, like things are very, I think, uh, focused on what the company can do for you. But when you join a startup, it's a little bit different because I think you have to think about what can I do for the company? And, and if you have the right people in the room with the right mindset, um, they all hopefully will think in a similar fashion, but you need to take time to like, make sure to step back, look at what you're doing and who you're doing it with and celebrate that time together. Um, and so what I'll do, for example, is every offsite or every holiday party or every time we get an opportunity to do that, I will always like take a step back and just look around and not talk to anybody and just kind of soak it in a little bit because I think those are the moments in between the chaos a little bit that, that you remember. And, and I think that's why a lot of people do this, right? Like those are the things that um, bring people together at the end of the day. So it is very important to, to have those moments and create them. So where'd you guys go for your offsite? Oh, we went to, we went to Napa. Ooh, so cool. it's yeah. Wine country here in San Francisco. Um, and so we stayed at a pretty nice place and, um, we had about three days where we just, uh, had some internal announcements and discussions around strategy and things like that. And then also sometimes to, uh, you know, celebrate together. Nice. Dude, that's yeah. exciting. That must felt good having everyone together from all over the world. Yeah, it's awesome. So this time around, um, we have them in Brazil. Uh, we have them uh, just all over. Right. And so we flew them all in. And so some of them have worked, been working with us for, you know, two, two and a half years. And it's the first time they came in. And so to see them, like they were just kind of, um, really, I think enjoying it. And, um, and it was really cool to give them the opportunity to come in and spend some time with everybody. Nice. What's your relationship like with, uh, your co-founder Duke? Um, I think really good, actually. I think we're both pretty level-headed most of the time. I mean, we don't have a very contentious relationship. Um, and I think we both bring different things to the table um, that make us a good uh, good combination. So, you know, Duke is a visionary for sure. Um, and so he definitely brings the vision to the table in terms of where the business is headed and what we're doing. Um, and I feel like I bring the value to the table. And so we call that the vision and the values, right? That combination is so important. And so between the two of us, um, you know, I think we, we definitely bring great things to the table to help push this business forward. What's like the rallying call or the, the big mission that you guys wrap your flag around? Yeah, it's to build a delightful travel and expense solution for every business user. If I'm, quoting it verbatim. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really our mission. We want to, we want to change this industry. I mean, when you look at, um, I always say this, like you look at some of our competition and started in the nineties and I told you earlier about my daughter who's 22 mm -hmm. and, and if I see her entering the workforce and I look at that software and I think to myself, can I ever see my daughter using that software? And I think, there's no way, right? It's like, this, this is a girl who, I'll give you an example. Like when I went to, when I went to apply for college, I did it on my computer. When she went to apply for college, I'll never forget it. She's applying for college on her cell phone. <laughs> so I'm like, clearly there's a generational difference here. That's really funny and interesting that I can learn from. And, and so I think about that the same way in terms of how we think about our product, right? Like who, who is going to be using our product? And I think it's that next generation. And I think, that's who we built it for, you know. And then your grandkids will not even apply to college. They'll just <laughs> download the knowledge into their brain. <laughs> yeah, who knows, man? Yeah, the singularity is coming. So. <laughs> Come on, Musk's Neuralink is on its way. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. What do you think about that stuff? Are you excited about the future? Yeah, I think uh, I'm ready for autonomous cars to hit and be fully yeah. functional. Yeah. 
I think I think that's going to be really interesting. Are you on Team Tesla? Uh, do I have a Tesla? All right, yeah. Are you or, on the team? Do you love Do you love the Teslas? Have you driven one? I think I think um, Elon is definitely very interesting. A little bit polarizing. He he may be a madman or a genius. You know, time will tell. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not sure how much they'll change the world with their mission. Um, I think it's very very aspirational. I know a lot of people are uh, team Tesla because of the recent jump in the stock price. <laughs> <laughs> Have you driven well, yeah. one? Have you driven one? I've ridden in one. I haven't driven one. Oh, you got to drive one with that autopilot. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, you're not technically driving, Joe. Well, <laughs> you are because it only kicks on like mid driving. That's fair. Have you seen the have you seen have you seen the concept cars for the autonomous cars that don't have like so they're basically like two couches facing each other. What? What are they There's, called? They're, uh, I don't know. I think I think it was a concept maybe by cruise. I'm not sure. But um, uh-huh. yeah, it's this idea that you get in and it's just two couches and you're just kind of lounging in this vehicle that's driving with, you know, driving you around. Let's do it. I, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. So, but what I think is most interesting about that is that um, think about all the truckers that are driving on the road today. Mm-hmm. When, when, when there are autonomous cars, it's going to completely change the trucking industry. Uh, a lot of people are going to be put out of work, right? So like, what, what is that going to do to the economy? What is that going to do? Like, um, I don't know. I think it's, I think the economy is very resilient. I I'm one of the optimists that we've just seen throughout our entire life. Like what happened when the printing press came out, you know, like every innovation lays off massive chunks of the market and yet the economy still goes forward. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a growth mindset person. So I'm always learning and adapting. I'm, you know, fairly competitive in the sense that I, I want to grow myself and I compete against myself primarily. Like I want to be a better version of myself today than I was yesterday. So that's why I got the Invisalign. You can't, can't really tell with the cameras, but that was one of my, yeah. one of my personal upgrades for this year. But uh, yeah, so I, I think that it will absolutely create a change in the market and people will have to learn new things, but I think it'll be, um, like a frog and and water like it'll happen slow enough to where it won't it it won't like when we imagine i think when we imagine the 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 scariness of it we imagine it like it's a light light switch being flipped like it'll happen in an instant like tomorrow all truckers will be gone but it'll all it'll always be a gradient right and as you expand that gradient over time through laws it'll just kind of happen there won't be a day that you wake up and all the truckers are displaced. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um, I think it changes things though. Like as more stuff gets, if those opportunities get taken away, I think eventually this may be controversial, but I think eventually over time, we may need to see a basic living wage because if everything's automated, what are people going to do? And then maybe people focus on other endeavors. You know? um, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. But I did like one thing that you said, Joel, which is about the growth mindset. Um, I'm a huge fan of that. I think um, I first learned about it. Actually, my son, my younger son, maybe two or three years ago, came home from school and he was telling me about this growth mindset. That's so and his cool. teachers are, her teachers are, his teachers are talking about it in school now. And so I thought, well, this is amazing. So let me learn more about that. And so it makes so much sense, right? Like, it's kind of like um, that, that outlook and that frame of mind is going to help you so much over time, as opposed to you know, they say a fixed mindset, which is like, you know, you don't, if you don't have any control of what you're doing or you're blaming other things for the things that are happening around you, like you just get so much more out of life that with the growth mindset. So I did want to at least comment on that. Yeah. And you know what? I actually, um, I heard the first alternative to the basic living wage concept, or it's like, it's like a modification of it. I heard somebody talking about it on the Joe Rogan podcast. And they're yeah. saying like an alternative to just giving people the money where to make basic services, like just things that you have. So like you would have a basic housing service, you would have basic cell service. We actually already have basic cell service in the United States. Like if you're a homeless person, you can fill out some form and you can just get a government cell phone uh, because it's, they've deemed it like a requirement, right? So you, I think that as the automation increases, which before I started this podcast, I almost started a podcast called Boom Automated, where we track the automation and displacement over time. But then I was like, nah, 
Uh, I went with this one instead, and I'm very happy I did. But I, I think that we, I think that the system, like the super organism we're a part of, right? This, this thing called life, I think it's smart enough and resilient enough that it will, it will survive without complete and total catastrophe. I think we make it through. Um, but I definitely think there's pain along the way. Oh yeah. I, I agree with that. But that's funny. So what was the inspiration for this other podcast for you or this idea? Well, so my, my wife, uh, her father has been a trucker for UPS for 35 years. <laughs> and I was talking with him at, at dinner and I was like, you know, we, I've known Michelle for seven plus years. So, uh, you know, year after year at dinner, I'm, I'm talking and, and letting Will, her, her dad, know about these advancements. And it started out the first year. He's like, oh, it's never going to happen. And then things started becoming more autonomous and gaining more success. And I'd always share our latest news story with him. And then I, I think like two years ago, they had the first like autonomous semi-truck delivery occurred. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, I let him know about that one. And he was like, he's, he's retiring, I think next year anyways. Uh, but I was, I was talking with him because at the time I said, Hey, look, you know, I used to automate real estate jobs and accounting functions in the early 2000s with the software I had written. And I'd go in there and the company would have 30 plus people in accounting and it would whittle down to like two because of the efficiencies of the technology. And it was always the people who were like, Oh, this is cool. This is the future. Let me learn and like, let me help. Those were always the ones that had the job after because they learned how to maintenance the system so i was sharing with them i was like hey see if ups has an autonomous division where they're working on this and see if you can you know get transferred or be the 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 test pilot or like you know get involved in in the transition so that you're relevant after the transition that's like a a a strategy that's what i was sharing with them so that's interesting and so what um what made you decide to go with the modern cto podcast instead um, well, I'll be real with you. So I had Logic 17. We, we were a consultancy, like just building technologies uh, for companies. And I really enjoyed it. But I was having my uh, first child and then my mom had just passed away. And I was like, you know what, this next 20 years is going to fly by. And I really want to, to do something great. And so I said, you know what, um, let's start to help. And then I found Gary V and he was talking about uh, sharing what you know today, trying to help others who know less, and just sharing the experience and starting that conversation. I said, okay, well, why don't I, why don't I start this podcast? And worst case scenario, I help a bunch of people, and I get to meet some great people who have also, you know, led technology teams and built product, and uh, and then I'll be in a I'll be in a better position. Um, and if I started the boom automated, I didn't want to turn into like a fear monger because that's not my where my heart's at like I don't want to make money off of I didn't want an audience like I didn't want I don't want an Alex Jones audience (laughs) right right and that's is that's where you go like if you're doing boom automated podcast you're going to be selling survival gear you're gonna be selling prepper gear like you're gonna have advertisers in those areas and like that's not what I wanted well um I think you know maybe it worked out for you in the long term I was going to mention um I uh, actually used to build real estate software also. What? What What real yeah. estate softwares? So um, I, I was partner in my consulting firm. Um, I was with two other guys and um, we uh, built this company called Usability Dynamics and we built real estate software for WordPress. So it was a, it was a plugin that you would install on your site that would allow you to list your properties that you were selling. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. And so it's really interesting because we got to do a couple of cool things. So one of the things is like out of all the sites where all of the real estate is listed, we had the opportunity to build in kind of like an ET phone home. So we could aggregate all the properties across all of the sites that were using the product. Of course, if they opt in and they want to share and then ultimately create kind of a centralized location to show all of that same data. Um, but what's funny about real estates is, I don't know if you're familiar with RETS. Oh yeah. I did lots okay. of RETS and I, yeah. it's a standard. That's not a standard, but yeah. <laughs> so what I was going to tell you is that's exactly how travel technology is. It's really, yeah, it's, it's a standard, but sometimes it's not really standard. And so, um, you know, whether it's like, 
you know, there's, there's like, rest is funny, right? Because it's one standard, but there's uh, basically infinite different variations of how that data goes <laughs> over there. I know. <laughs> and so, and so travel is the same way in a lot of ways. It's very complex in that manner. Um, and I always draw a lot of parallels between the two. So there's, I think that also means there's opportunity for people to come in and disrupt those, those technologies. So you've, you've had to create like your own internal mappings and things like that. Um, yeah, so we have, what we've done is we treat any, um, technology vendor as an abstract layer. And so we have our APIs in the middle and our APIs basically translate from what our apps expect into what the different supplier expects, because there's many different suppliers for hotel and airfare and car rental. And so I can connect and I've abstracted that all the way so I can connect to multiple sources at once and they all sort of translate into this one format that my my apps expect. Uh, and so there's this middle layer that we've built to completely pull that away from how we connect to the independent services. Nice. I built a layer like that with the real estate stuff because we connect all the yeah. different boards and we called it, we called that middle layer transfusion. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Very very fancy, right? Very. Fancy. <laughs> but I definitely know. I, I definitely know that problem well from both real estate and travel. <laughs> it's a fun one. <laughs> yeah. So what is the what does the rest of your day look like? Today or yeah, uh, a lot of meetings, a lot of things like vendor review, security review, team planning, growth, those kind of things. Uh, really have had to transition away from the individual contributions that I can make to our code. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a tough thing, but when you make the transition, you realize that you can have a larger impact and still be around and you realize how many more levels up there actually are and that you can start helping the people make their transitions too and coach them through their careers and that just becomes, you know, massively rewarding. Oh, I yeah, you are preaching to the choir. Um, I talked to my team about when you're an individual contributor, you're focused on your craft, right? And, and being the best at your craft. And then as you grow in seniority, you, your influence just becomes wider so that you're now helping others uh, and you're influencing their craft and what they do. And that over time, that just becomes wider and wider as you grow. Um, and some people like, especially engineers, I think it's, it's a, kind of infamous that everyone thinks like I have to become an engineering manager at some point, but then a lot of people get into it and they don't really know. They don't really like it because they don't, they don't, you know, they've never done it before. Maybe it, you know, you just have to, I think, try it to see if you will like it or, or can be successful at it. And, and then some people end up saying, well, I just want to be an individual contributor. And so I think that's why you see kind of these two career tracks for engineers, you know, going all the way up to architect on the IC side and then, eventually like manager, director, et cetera, on the, on the management side. Yeah. Environment's also a big thing too, because I, you can get promoted and have your first experience as a manager, be at a company that like, isn't good. And so you could have a bad experience as a manager um, because not all companies, especially getting to see the culture now and all these different companies you get to work with them. It, it, the culture is like, a massive differentiator between organizations. And I didn't yeah. realize how much so until I started talking and doing hundreds of interviews with people and then getting to go visit them and see their, their, their cultures. And it's not like there are ones that are wrong and right. There's just ones that work for you or, or don't, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. It's, I always wonder about how other companies do it. Cause I only, you know, I have my limited, view of the world based on my experiences and so you know like like what 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 really separates a good company from a great company you know culture wise well if you, you have an office in san francisco right you guys got some people yeah. there yeah well next yeah. time i'm out there i'll stop by and we'll hang out and um i'll just get to experience you know your office and i'll share with i'll share with you candidly like the differences that i see between companies and then, you know, you interpret that how you would like to interpret it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. But a spoiler alert, the way you think as leader, like top, top 1%. <laughs> so oh, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is important to me for sure for 
this company and and just you know all the things that are involved with it it's it's high up on my on my radar so you guys have a careers page on your website yeah let me um travelbank.com forward slash jobs is where it's at you guys hiring we are yeah we're growing all right so if you want to work at travel bank go there and we'll put that in the show notes too for you so they can go click it okay great that's awesome all right awesome great dude we did it i'm excited and i'll let you know next time i'm out in san francisco and i'll come by and say hello yeah definitely reach out it'd be great to uh get to meet you face to face awesome talk soon reed see you buddy right, thanks bye, bye everyone